Whether you're brand new to permaculture or it's something you've practiced for years, the amount of information available can feel overwhelming. With thousands of articles, hundreds of classes, and more books than we can count, just finding a starting point is daunting. Whether you're looking for the next steps on a property or feeling like your permaculture career is in a rut, book a meandering with me today. This casual phone call will help you define your strengths and develop ways to help you become the permaculture practitioner you want to be. Check out the permaculturepodcast.com slash meandering to find out more and schedule your call today. The Permaculture Podcast is only made possible through the support of listeners. And for the fall fundraiser, we need your help. We have two goals this year, to fund the podcast through 2022 and to complete a special multi-part series documenting the legendary work of Rosemary Morrow. To do both, we need to raise $12,000. Since the podcast started, approximately 600 people have donated to keep this work moving forward. That's just one listener per episode. Be our one listener today and help us share permaculture with the more than 25,000 people who will listen to the interview which follows with Shantri Kassara. With your donation, we're able to continue to promote permaculture education and programming completely free to people all over the world. Whether you can give $1, $2, 5 or more, any amount will help. Join the community of listeners who help us make permaculture accessible to anyone with an internet connection. You can give online to this campaign at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, using Venmo at permaculturepodcast, or drop something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, care of Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. We can expect change to occur continuously throughout our lives. We're likely to call several places home. Friends will come and go. We'll move between jobs multiple times and likely even switch career paths. As permaculture practitioners, in the landscape we play with change, slowing it in some places of our design, advancing it in others to move succession on a timeline that matches what we want within any given zone. But how do we change as people and plan the succession of an organization and the land it inhabits through time? To examine this question, I'm joined by Shantri Kassara, founder of The Living Center, an eco-spiritual learning space and demonstration site situated on 50 acres near London, Ontario, Canada. In our conversation, Shantri shares his personal transformation and continual recreation over four decades as a farmer, herbalist, and teacher, as well as how the site changed from a small herb farm to a site which has drawn thousands of visitors from dozens of countries. We also touch on how he and his wife and partner are planning for the next generation of participants on the land and for the future of the Living Center. If you're planning past the horizon of your life, and for those who will forge their own path beyond the trail you've blazed, this is an interview I invite you to sit down and listen to. I'll join you again after with some ways you can continue and participate in this conversation. Then, Shantri, can you give us a bit of an introduction to yourself and the Living Center, and we can take the conversation from there? Thanks, Scott. Uh, yeah, so I'm Shantri Kassara. I was born into a, a family, and my great-grandma was a herbalist, and when I was in high school, I think it was 15 or 16, I came home and I said, Mom, I want to be a herbalist, and that, that's when I found out from my mom that my, my great-grandma was a herbalist. So my passion for plants started at a very, very young age. And when I came to Canada, I didn't speak English, so I, my friends became plants. And uh, used to put maple leaves on a clothesline and as a four or five-year-old kid. And I've always just played, you know, played with the dirt and played with soil. And so anyways, it's been just part of me for a long, long time. And I think I was in my teens, late teens. I grew up in London, Ontario, and I started chanting to my parents, let's move to the country. Let's get out of the city and move in the country. And they said, no, 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 you won't like that. So for seven years, I worked on saving, saving funds, saving money to finally get out to the country. So 1983 is when I found this piece of land that I'm on. And that was uh, 1983. 
And the reason I chose this piece of land is one is that it has this amazing 25 acre forest and these trees that are well over hundred years old, just humongous size and just magnificent. The rest of the 25 acres was pretty much a homestead. There was hardly any trees on the property, but it was organic. It's been organic since the beginning of time. So I met the kids who, whose parents actually built this house in 1912, 1914. So that was pretty neat meeting them. And then met the other family who lived here from 1930 to 1950. And then, uh, the family we bought it from, from 1950 to 1983. So that was the land. But I got a degree in, as a, I got my PhD in nutrition. So that's where, uh, where I went and studied and became a, a nutritionist. But my passion has always been herbalism. So I've been really known more as a herbalist than, a, than as a nutritionist. And that's where my, the two come together, herbalism and nutrition, especially wild, wild nutrition. And so I, I moved here on this land, 1983. It was more like a homestead for me, just live off the land. I had no idea how I was gonna make a, make a living. I had five things. I had a bicycle, books, a stereo, records, and a sleeping bag. That was the five things I owned when I left my parents' house to move here. And the whole house was empty, but I was in bliss. And I just started planting, I just kept planting. And next thing you know, within a few years, people were coming out and asking questions. The first three years I went to farmer's markets, tried to sell organic vegetables, but I realized nobody knew what organic was back in the early 80s mid-80s, and that's when I realized that I had to start teaching. I was going to farmer's markets, but I wasn't selling much produce. I was, I was educating people, and I realized I think education is what's needed. And so basically, I guess 1987, somewhere in the mid-80s to late-80s is when it became much more official. That was, this was an educational center. People were coming out to, uh, to learn about herbs and nutrition and organic gardening. My passion for trees, for um, native plants, gets stronger and stronger. And by then, I'd had my degree, and little by little, also my practice became stronger and became well-known as a practitioner. And I did have an office in London, became like a full-time practitioner for three or four days a week at a health educational center in London. Here on the, in the country is where I did my workshops and teaching. And then I also taught at Fanshawe College, so I taught there for 12 years. So yeah, I was teaching here on weekends, teaching at Fanshawe College uh, in the evenings and uh, evening classes, and then full-time practitioner from Monday to Friday or Monday to Thursday, I guess it was, and providing and making medicines for people and uh, counseling people as a herbalist and nutritionist. And it just kept growing. 40 years later, and I'm still here. So I'm not sure that's a short intro or long intro, but anyways, that's sort of a bit of my, my beginning as a, as a four-year-old kid coming to Canada and then uh, the journey to today. And then where did you come from before landing in Canada? I was born in Yugoslavia or former Yugoslavia. So that's where I was. I heard about the hardships and all the stuff that my parents went through. And my, my great, not my, not grandmother, my great grandmother who worked in, the, uh, lived in a forest making medicines and people came to see her. I guess so she was a forest herbalist, I guess. And my mom and my grandmother learned a lot from her during the war years or after the war. And that's where... When I was in Canada, uh, I realized that everything my parents were doing, and I had grandparents living upstairs in their house and other grandparents living across the street. My other aunts and uncles were, you know, around the corner. But everything we were, they were doing was, was natural. It was just all home remedies. And I didn't realize that until, you know, later what, how I was brought up. And partly it's because they couldn't afford pharmaceuticals or drugs, and they just knew about plants and organic gardening and sustaining themselves. Well, thank you for sharing that with us as well. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk with you is because you've been doing this for what many of us would consider now a long time. In leading into our conversation, you know, as I was sharing with you, the longest running permaculture site that I'm aware of in North America is the Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture Institute, which is, I think, in its 38th year now, give or take. And so that you've been on this land since the early 1980s and been doing this work and blending together not only this clinical practice, but also the like folk traditions and the work of an herbalist and providing education. I can only imagine that you've had to go through several different passages from those first days to where you are now. And I was wondering if you could share some of that arc of what it's been like to run the living center for this long and how it has grown and changed over the years. I love the way you put that. Uh, yeah, there's landmarks. I think of them as chapters. Sometimes it feels like seven year cycles or seven year chapters of what it was like for the first seven years of being really, really poor and living out here without a vehicle and 
I was allowed to move on the land on August the 4th. That's when I got the deed. But the family wanted to leave to move out earlier. Uh, so they wanted to move out in June. So they said, you know, if you want, we can just plop up a section of land here and you can move on the land in June just so you can have a garden. Because if you move in in July, by the time you get yourself a staff plant a garden, the season's over. So, and they didn't want to leave the farmhouse empty. So they said, we're just going to move out and you can move in earlier, like about a month earlier. So I was here like middle of June, I guess. And uh, that was beautiful. So I lived here without a vehicle, like without a pickup truck, no car, just had a bicycle on 10 speed. And uh, I was in bliss. And what I would do is a way to make me an income sooner because I wasn't known as a, as a practitioner at that time. I was still becoming uh, established and feeling confident in that. What I would do is I would plant some seeds and I would harvest them a week later. So I started getting into the sprouts and into microgreens and I'd put them on my saddlebag early in the morning and then bike into London. So London's about, I can get there in about half an hour, maybe 40 minutes if I biked really fast. I'd deliver all the sprouts to the health food stores just as they opened at nine o'clock and I lived on 60 bucks a week. So that's how I sort of made that income in the early days. So I knew exactly how many seeds to plant, how many things to uh, harvest. And I'd make that 60, 60 some odd dollars every week. So I did that for about three months. And I think September, sometime in the end of August, my dad said, this is totally ridiculous. So he bought me a pickup truck. And he said, here, at least now you can get to farmer's markets and, and make a little bit more than $60 because you can't sustain yourself and you will not be able to heat the house for the whole winter, et cetera, et cetera. And the house was also had a, um, it was a wood furnace, but it also had oil as a backup. But for 10 years, I never actually turned the oil on. It's just, I heated it with just wood. So anyways, that was sort of the early, early years for those seven years of cutting firewood without a chainsaw, doing everything because I loved hand tools. I never liked um, noise and I didn't like the, the smell and anything like that. So I think that's why I was resistant for a vehicle. That's why I was resistant for even getting a chainsaw. So that's how I sort of brought in the firewood with an axe and just a two-person saw, bringing down the trees and uh, cutting them up and splitting them. So that was the first seven years. The next seven years was me becoming known as an organic gardener, I guess you would say. That would be, I guess, sometime in the 80s. And I started teaching organic gardening classes. And I remember way back then in the early days, somewhere in the 80s, I remember contacting Bill Molson saying, would you come to Canada and do a workshop? But remember, I'm really young. I'm, in, I'm only in my, in my 20s at the time. So to invite someone to come and you know, facilitate a workshop here, it was really new territory for me. So that, it never happened. So I had got exposed to permaculture at a very early age, actually even before I moved on the land. But it started real slowly with the microgreens, the sprouts, doing vegetable gardening, but where it really took off. And this became known as a herbal educational center, I guess in the late 80s, early 90s. So that would be, I'm now getting into my next chapter of the phase of the center. And I was at the right place at the right time. So I remember in the I contacted Fanshawe College and said, can I offer classes on herbalism or, you know, herb walks and herbal first aid? And they said, you cannot offer anything like that at this college. They actually hung up on me. And then what happened is about two, three years later, they contacted me and said, you can teach whatever you want on herbalism. And for 12 years, every single thing I taught there was full and there was a waiting list for people to get in. Because the herb garden here was established. It was, it's a medicine wheel herb garden. It's about a quarter acre in size. It was the largest herb garden in all of Canada. Not in size, but in the sense of the diversity of plants. There was about 500 different herbs there. So basically what started happening is people from the college were actually coming here, and this became like an extension of the college because everything started being taught here at the center because this is where I was making the medicines. This is where the plants were. I had the forest, I had the fields. So that's when it really, really took off. And this is way before internet, and this is before there was even hardly any books on herbalism. Herbalism was just at the infancy stage that time. And then I guess the next stage is when I met my wife uh, 22 years ago and her, uh, she's Métis, so she's part Native and uh, part French. And she really has this beautiful blend of bringing in eco-spirituality and earth connection. And that became a whole new chapter of what the center started expanding into is more the eco-spirituality and the connection and the heart connection. And it was right around then when permaculture started really coming in strongly at the time as well. During this whole time, yes, I kept planting trees. I was into plants. I guess you could say forest gardening was happening here. And if I wasn't that familiar with the term forest gardening, I was like, actually, Robert Hart hadn't even coined the term forest gardening yet. But I think that's what was happening on this land because I was just allowing a lot of it to regenerate itself and me tending to some of the wild places. So it was emerging. So when forest gardening and permaculture started really becoming more, more known and the, the books started coming out on forest gardening and permaculture, this land already had a feel of that here. 
And that's what's been happening here for the last 20 years. But I'm going to say in the last seven years, the whole thing of being local and bioregional herbalism, local food movement was happening, the slow food movement was happening. And all those things were already in place here because we have like well over a thousand edible and medicinal plants that we can harvest and use. So that's what's been happening, as you can say now, for the last you know, five, six, seven, eight years of um, that coming through in our teachings and what we offer and demonstrate to people. And maybe the other thing that's been happening, too, in the last 15 years is all the natural buildings that have happened here. We have an earthship greenhouse. We have a straw bale building. We have a, um, a cordwood building, a car building that we're actually working on right now, which we're calling the sanctuary. So natural buildings have come in as well in the last 15 years. So we can actually demonstrate that and people can see them and obviously get their hands involved. So that's sort of the chapters of what's been happening here. And it's moved from being a very personal endeavor that you were engaged in in the beginning as you kind of found that bliss and were on the land with a bicycle and doing all this work by hand. And then it grew into more of a community effort over time as you went out to the college and were bringing people back and now have become even more of a teaching center and then also get to see like all of these buildings in practice. I just realized that I left out of a chapter in, in, the, in the history is one of the things that Laura and I did is we offered an apprenticeship program. It was residential. And we had, it started with two people and it gradually became between eight to 12 people lived here with us from around Earth Day, sometime in April, all the way till end of September, early October. And having people live here, in other words, they lived a lifestyle. They lived on making medicines, foraging for plants. We were pretty much eating and living off the land plate. Easily 70, 90% of the, everything that we grew here and made was here. And we had people from 21 countries come here to experience this way of living, this lifestyle, being in the kitchen, making things and forging. And, and what happened is by creating this little bubble of all of us living together, and we did this for seven years, which was the most rewarding work we've ever done in our lives and actually the most exhausting and depleting. And there's a few people who are teachers and some of them professors just said that we were totally insane. Here's two people working from, you know, 6.30 in the morning, having meditations, having a sacred time together, having breakfast at 8 o'clock, working with them because there was hands-on learning. And then a lot of times in the evening, there'd be an evening class. And we did six days out of seven. We didn't have a chef. We didn't have any staff. We had nobody. It was just two of us going from <laughs> April all the way till early October. And what happened in that seven-year cycle is we planted a lot of gardens. There was a lot of orchards that were planted here because we kept planting and planting and planting. What are you going to do with these 8 to 12 people who've got all this energy? And most of them were in their 20s and 30s, even though there was a few that were, you know, in their 50s or early 60s, but most of them were in their 20s and 30s. And uh, it was the most rewarding work and the most exhausting. And after the seven years, we said, we'll never do this again. But now it's coming out through in a different way of how to have it become much more permanent, because if not, it's still transient. They come here and then they leave. Next year, there's another group of people come here and then leave. So I just want to bring that in in the sense of why there's five acres of gardens here now five acres of forest gardens that have established because there's these people who just loved being on the land. Well, and thank you for looping us back to that because that was part of where I wanted to go next was that I was first introduced to your work because of what you're doing now as kind of your next step to ensure that the Living Center continues in perpetuity and that you have folks who can continue this work for years and decades to come. And so I was hoping that you could share a bit about your integration of your ecosystem residents into this and share with us the campaign that you're working on to raise some of the funds for this next vision. After having done this yourself for so long, having worked in all these different ways to support it, that now after four decades, you're going out into the world to do a campaign to see this continue. Thank you. I, I wanted to bring in one piece before the campaign is one is why this was happening for us is that with all everything that's been planted here, the amount of abundance that's on this land is just it's mind boggling. I mean, there's just trees everywhere that are just loaded with stuff and realize that. I've always been small is beautiful. I've always I have never wanted anything to get bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, even though it did as an educational center and with the gardens. I mean, there's no way two people need five acres of all this food and all this abundance and the diversity of animals that are here. It's just, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, this really is a paradise. I know I'm biased here talking about it, but uh, there's pictures on our website. You can see that. But to me, it's like looking at how do we bring back that 
the apprenticeship program. And that's what we've all, because that was, like I said, it was, it was so rewarding for both of us, but it was by the, by October, it's like, no, never again. And then we do it again in April and have them back because it was just, these people were just so amazing. And having people from 21 countries come here and just passionate and they leave and continue, you know, offering what their passion is, what they learned here, their experience, because it was learned by doing so. They were doing it. There wasn't just, it, we weren't in class. If there was a class, it was the forest, it was the fields, it was being outside. And we always kept looking at how to bring it back without getting burnt out. And we didn't want to grow it to have to, you know, start hiring chefs and hiring staff and having, uh, having that. We want it to become much more everyone's involved. Because we ended the apprenticeship program, oh my God, like seven, almost 10 years ago, I guess. But there was always that longing to go deeper because to do a workshop, I love teaching. I love doing herb walks and, and uh, you know, three-day workshop, three-day weekend uh, workshops. But when you have an apprenticeship program, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper because you're with these people, not just for a day or two. It's like for weeks and months. And it was residential. So they were living here and they're in our face and we're in their face. And we're pushing their buttons and they're, we're going beyond their comfort zones. So by having that there and then not having it, we created a mentorship program, which is what we offer now. And people come for usually three days in the winter, three days in spring, three days in summer, and three days in the fall. And then usually there's a fifth weekend of a, like a graduation, which is great, but they're still not, they're not part of the community. They're here doing a mentorship. That's when it came to us is to have something become much more rooted, much more permanent. So we have a few people who have projects here. And what we call this is ecosystem participants, people who have a project here. So we have two folks who are from Poland and they have a bee village here. It's a bee research station. So they teach people about beekeeping and they brought bees from all around the world, which ones can adapt to climate change, which ones are more resilient to the change that are going on. I think they have like 40, 44 hives now and uh, different styles. And my, my mom and dad, well, actually, my mom was a beekeeper in the early days when I was here. I forgot to leave out that part of the chapter in my early days. when. So I lived here, but my parents always came here and supported what uh, I was doing and learning a lot of skills. And they started with two hives and they grew to 44 hives until the class B syndrome happened. They, my parents lost those bees. And then my dad passed away and, and my mom continued, but my mom Neither my parents spoke English very well, so they couldn't really read and understand what was going on with the whole bee collapse syndrome. So there was a pause with no bees on the land here, but having uh, Stefan Yolanda here and taking care of their own bees and having a project here, they get to have their dreams fulfilled. It helps us because with some of these ecosystem participants, it doesn't mean, and I, I don't like the term rent, no one's really renting the land here. We do, some people have a financial exchange, some people it's more of a, a work trade. So they're just working in exchange for the amount of land they have there or whatever their project is here. We're trying to keep the money out of it, even though at times there is needs to make sure there's enough income flow so the center can continue to flourish and, and expand. So the ecosystem participants has been really beautiful and we've never advertised, we've never promoted. It is on the website now. So there is a, an active page now. So people can see what the opportunity is for people to say, I would like to be part of this, but it's a very gradual, slow process. Not anyone can come along saying, well, I've done a permaculture course. Can I take, to, you know, get an acre of land or five acres and I'm going to have a project there, project at the Living Center. What it really is, is for them to get to know us. There's a friendship that develops. It's an organic process. They go through our, some of our mentorships. They go through our PDC process of our slant of how we teach permaculture because our permaculture is very much about this region. We are plant-based here at, on the land, looking at how to support each other so that whoever comes up with a proposal, they already know the essence or what the core values are of the living center. So it's not just strangers coming along, yeah, I've got an idea, but it doesn't fit in with the, what the core essence of what this land has been for these 40 years. So it's a gradual, slow process. Sometimes it takes a year or two years for there to be that friendship and for that business plan to finally come in from that person and for them to have a site analysis of the land that they're going to take and take care of. And some people have more land, other people have less land. So one of the groups that's coming up right now with the proposal is a forest school. And for them to get a few acres of land, to have some buildings there, to create self-sufficiency, and all the kids are going to be involved in building the, the structures, all, all going to be natural sites, 
It's going to be off the grid. It's going to have their own food forest, everything else there. And the school is going to also provide something to the community. So it's going to provide something to restaurants and beyond just the land here. So that's where the question you were asking about the campaign that emerged for us, I guess you could say in January, first, second week of January, we had one trajectory where we were going and then realized that instead of us downscaling and becoming just, you know, the rent of myself, going back to my original dream of being a homesteader, which is actually still there deep in my heart, is to live so simply and to live so small and to demonstrate that. What we realize is that we can downscale, but the center can upscale, but without creating a, a huge workload for us. I mean, yes, there's still workload in the sense of meetings, getting to know the people, hearing their proposals. And that's when we launched the crowdfunding campaign was in conversation, I guess you can say in April. And I thought we could launch it for Earth Day and realized that that wasn't realistic. So we launched it on June 21st, the first day of the summer, which is very symbolic because it's also the, the anniversary of the center. And it's also our wedding anniversary as well. So a combination of things are there. So to launch it on June 21st was there. And then we went until September 21st. So actually the campaign just ended on last week, a week, week today, I guess it was. Even though people can, of course, still you know, support what we're doing here. And I think the crowdfunding campaign page is still up on our, on our website. The purpose for the campaign was so that we can have a, like a commercial kitchen here. We can create more of an infrastructure for our people who want to also be ecosystem participants here. And this became really clear just because of what's happened with the pandemic and what's going to be happening with our economic adjustments in the world. It's not just one country, the whole world's going to be, what are the pressures going to be to get us out of debt? Because all the countries, all the governments, you know, we've all gone into debt. And what will be the new, new emergence? I heard something just a couple of weeks ago on the radio that 40% of the world right now is either unemployed, they got fired, or they got laid off, or they don't want to go back to work. But it's like 40% of the world is looking at what now? What kind of paradigm do we want to support and shift? What are my passions? So whenever I think of the, the word lockdown, it's like, go to your room and dream. And when you come out of lockdown, what has been your dream? And how are you going to come out now? Are you going to want to go back to business as usual? Or do you want to come out as more regenerative and supporting this cultural shift? And I love that. I, I mean, I love the word culture and permaculture is because there is a fermenting. There's a, a culturing that's happening inside of us. But it also has to be with your partner and has to be with your community. Of what is the bubbling forth that's coming through? And then it goes into community and it becomes larger and larger to our whole country, our whole world. So that's the part I'm still watching and observing of how we're going to come out of all this. Is our world going to really come out, you know, magnificently beautiful? Or the way we like to call it is the, the magnificent new normal that's going to emerge out of all this. What will be the magnificent new normal? Because we're not going to go back to the old. I, I just can't. I can't see how the world's going to say we're going to just go back to the way it was three years ago. Uh, I just feel like there's just too much um, upheavals that have been happening and continue to happen. So the crowdfunding campaign, it came out of that is to say, how can we downscale, but the center can upscale and to have the funds support these people that might want to have a great idea, but they don't have the funds or they don't have the skills so that there's, there's exchanges so they can come do some of our mentorships or they come with $5,000. Okay, we're going to give them 5,000 that came through from the, from the campaign or uh, how do we support that? So uh, hopefully that answered your question of how the campaign emerged and how it's in the purpose for that. It does. And it's one of those pieces that is becoming a more prevalent part of the conversation within the permaculture community is that for many folks, it is as much as we would like to creatively respond to change and use all of these different non-financial forms of capital to move ourselves forward. Because of where society has gone, in many cases, you know, that core of permaculture and having a garden exists because if you can grow your own food and feed yourself, that removes a lot of the constraints that are placed upon us. But that where many of us find ourselves now, the financial is the largest piece that is holding us back. And in many cases, it is because of our ability to respond in new and interesting ways and design solutions, it's very small quantities of money can make a huge difference for many people who are interested in permaculture, sustainable living, all these different regenerative practices. And so how do 
we move into that space after having existed through perhaps like a day job or an inheritance or a partner who has been super supportive into these other modes of work and thinking so that we can continue these practices that are so meaningful to us. One of the things that we do on, on Monday evenings is, is by invite only. It's people who are, they might not be the core of the center, but it's people who want to be involved or sort of, I guess you could say the extended circle or the extended community that's part of this land. And so we've invited a few people, I'm, I'm going to say about 10, 12, 15 of us. And it's on Monday evening, so it was last night. And what we're calling it is Active Dreaming. This is not on our website. And what we do is we, we dream together of what we sense is coming, what we sense is what we're tuning into, either from news, conversation with people, of what we're sensing is uh, happening. And then we go into a, a visioning for 15, 20 minutes. And then you come out and we actually share what insights came to us and what we feel like we need to create more resilience for ourselves, for our families. And it's not just about the center, it's actually beyond the center of what does each person need and what the person's skills are of what we're sensing needs to happen in the next three to four, five months, six months. So a lot of times people can vision, oh yeah, this is what the world can look like in 10 years from now or 20 years from now. But can you actually vision can, in like seven months from now or three months from now, what will you be doing? Where will the world be at? But when you have 10 or 12 people who are all tuning into something and we bring that together and it becomes one dream, like what is the commonality that we're all sensing, what we're all picking up? We're doing this every Monday as we're getting to know each other and trusting each other. And sometimes there's dark stuff that comes up and fears like, oh, my God, this could be a really dark, you know, cold, <laughs> barren winter coming up, a dark season. Or it can actually be magnificent and beautiful. And looking at, you know, who, what are the skills that people have? What are the needs that people need? And how we support that. So in other words, I, I love one of the phrases that comes from Bill Mollison. I can't remember how long ago he said this. Stop networking. Start working the net. I mean, that's been with me for like, I think at least 10 years now. It's like, start working the net. Because yeah, networking is like, here, here's my business card. I got yours. Okay, let's exchange websites or emails. It's like, that's networking. But working the net means actually the hands on the, with the earth. You're, you're actually engaged in actually doing something and making a difference. However small, however big with yourself and the people you care about. And so I believe that's what's happening with our active dreaming. It's not just dreaming. It's not just fantasizing. Yeah, this is what's going to happen. It's like, no, what are the steps we're going to do this week? What are the steps we're going to do next month? So that what we're sensing that needs to happen seven months from now, we'll be here. Right now, I'm going to say there's about 20 to 50 people involved with the center. Because there was this four school happening. There's 30 families who want to have a school here. And it's going to be unique because the center is going to be part of creating the curriculum. It's going to be involved in setting what the school's going to be like. And we're going to be maybe guest facilitators. But it's a very slow, gradual process of what's happening there. So there's these individuals who want to be involved in some way. And there's just so many possibilities. It's just, it's just hard to believe of how many different things are going to happen. And all these different pieces. People just saying, okay, here we are. We're, open. we're opening up the center. We're being careful how we're opening it up. But allowing people to come in with ideas. And what really stands out for me is that you're building on top of decades of success and experience, that this is not a dream of what could be. You've already been doing this for so long that it is just a continuation of the growth that you've experienced from, as I kind of referenced earlier, you starting as a single individual and growing upward and outward from there. Yeah, it did. And I'm, and I'm really grateful that I had parents that, that helped in, and uh, supported my dream in the early days. I'm glad I had a, a great community of people who supported this. And I'm glad that you know, I have a beautiful, beloved soulmate who's on this, on this path longer than I have. She's been to it for over 50 years. So she just yeah. turned 72 last week. So it's just beautiful how this is uh, emerging. And you're right, it's, it's almost like it was a seed. It grew into a few more, a few more. And there's a good solid trunk, good solid roots here now to allow these branches. And that's the way I actually see it. That's actually the image that comes to us when we see people as ecosystem participants and moving and creating more projects here. And we don't see a lot of projects. We might see maybe eight to 12 different projects that are happening here. Right now, there's about four projects that are happening. We're not pushing it. It's just making sure it's a, it's a fit. It's not just a fit for us. It's not just for the center, but it fits in with the other people who already have a project here of how there's going to be the collaboration uh, with each person. We feel really, really solid what's happening here. When I think of all the people that are involved in building this cordwood cob sanctuary, 
about 500 square feet with also another building called a bathhouse, which is going to have outhouses and solar batteries, et cetera. And the amount of people that have been involved in building this, I'm going to say it's been, uh, oh my God, I'm going to say at least 50 to 100 people have been involved in building it. Sometimes people want it for half a day or a day, and other people are here for, you know, two, three days a week helping to do the cobbing and do the debarking of, of the logs. And it's, it, we're, we're now finally starting to build on the second, we're going to the second story. It's a two-story building. It, it is exciting. So even though we have not reached our, what do you call it, uh, the goal of what we wanted with our campaign, even though the campaign's not over, it's continuing, and we're accepting that. But what's done is it has really built community. We were just awe and shocked at how many people stepped forward and wanted to be part of the vision when we said we have opportunities for work trade, for doing our mentorships or doing our courses that we don't have to pay, but you can just, you know, pay it off through helping us in the gardens, helping us with the natural building. That has been, been fantastic. So the campaign has been slower. The natural building has been slower, but the community, there's a really strong weave there. And I think people just resonate with the vision. The vision was there and it's like, yeah, I like that vision. I like that future. And I want to be involved in that. One of my friends and mentors talks about, you know, maybe one in 10 projects launch. Maybe one in 10 exist after the first year or so. Maybe one in 10 of those still exist after five or 10 years. And here you are these many decades later, you have one of the one in a thousand or one in 10,000 projects that found all the resources and connections that were needed to exist for lifetimes. And it's really just, as I say, pointing back to like Crimpy and many of the other organizations, we have ones that we can point to that have existed for decades, but they are relatively few and far between. And I was just reading last week about one of the longest running communes in, I think it was California, just closed after like 60 years. But here you are putting these pieces in place and raising up another generation of meaningful projects and doing it at a scale that is human, which I think is really important with a lot of the visions we have. As you shared with me, you were looking for five acres, but wound up with 50. And I know from talking with master gardeners in the United States, looking at the work of like Robert Rodale and what he developed with organic gardening, talking with other permaculture folks, in many cases for us to have the beautiful, rich lives that we want, growing all of our own food for ourselves and our friends and family is only a few acres. And so if we create projects that are right-sized that they can be more sustainable and more resilient in ways that larger projects wouldn't be. It is a beautiful vision and a beautiful example, everything that you've done to bring this together. Thank you. Yeah, because when I mentioned that book, you know, Five Acres of Independence, that was a family of four people, right? Living on five acres for independence. That's what we knew back in the, somewhere in the 1970s, somewhere in the mid seventies, that book came out. And now the information that I've gathered and come across is that you could have a family of four on one acre that can actually feed themselves. You can have passive solar. You can actually have, you know, the bio shelter. You can have, you can create these microclimates. I mean, how to have season extension. When you think of how many things we know now compared to you know, somewhere in the 70s of how much we know about human health, human vitality, natural building, soil fertility. When you look at all the things that we know now, how to do it. So to go for four people on five acres to say, now it can actually be four people on one acre. And people have done that, you know, the miraculous abundance folks in, in France. And there's numerous people who've done it on a small scale. And that's, that's why I love to inspire people is to have a lot more gardeners have things. Our cities could become so green. A lot of people come here it's like, yeah, but I can't afford 50 acres. Like you don't need 50 acres. You, you don't have to have a huge farm to feed yourself or to make an income. You can actually do it on a very small scale. That's what we want to demonstrate. So one of the things that's really important for us is to go from education to demonstration and from demonstration to go to inspiration because the place feels beautiful and you can just see the abundance. Because I used to think education was the most important. And obviously I still do, but I think what's more important than education is to demonstrate. You know what? This actually works. So what we did in 2017, 2018, this section on our website, we have a whole, like an article I put together. In 2018, we actually harvested 2,645 pounds of fruits, berries, vegetables. So it was uh, 1,200 kilos of food. And that was done with no fossil fuel. There's no rotel, there's no tractor, there's no fertilizer, there's actually even no manures. 
it was doing it through forest guarding perspective. And when people think of that, the catch was how few hours it was. It was just around 120 hours of foraging to bring that in. That was done from March 21st to December 21st. So in other words, first day of spring to the last day of fall. For these nine months, we were able to bring in 2,645 pounds of food, be it sprouts, be it microgreens, be it nuts. And we actually document exactly every single thing we harvested. And we also said where it came from. Did it come from the kitchen? Did it come from the, the greenhouse? Did it come from the the vegetable garden, did it come from the wild? Did it come from the forest? Was it native? Was it perennial? Was it annual? We actually document so well. I wanted to do this project again more thoroughly and hopefully have a few more people involved because when we did this, it was only four of us. It was my wife and I, and we had two princesses that were here for the summer. So that's why I talk about is education and demonstrating something. And if people feel that it's done so well, they're just inspired because it is beautiful and you can see the abundance that's there. One of the things that we're doing um, for ourselves is when I say that we're downscaling is that hopefully next year at this time, we're going to have more ecosystem participants here. Hopefully there's more people actually involved in the center. So the Loren and myself can actually downscale and we're actually have, we're going to have new, uh, what do you call them, job descriptions. So we're still going to be facilitators. We're still going to be you know, teachers and offering those things. But what we want to do is become more elders. My deep yearning now is actually start writing, to start putting more stuff out there. I mean, I've written thousands of articles. I've written numerous course material. Uh, there's numerous eBooks that we've done. And a lot of these things are available because we did the campaigns also on our website. But what I want to start doing is actually what I just shared with you about documenting what we're doing here. One of the guys who did the footage for our crowdfunding campaign, uh, the video footage, what he wants to do is we'll do one next year to see actually how well did we do. Yes, you did your campaign. Great. You got some funds. You got some stuff going. Now I want to see how well you're actually governing yourselves, how well we're actually tending to our hearts and our needs and our, and our souls and how much integration is really happening. So the person's not just saying, yeah, I got my little business over here. I'm making so much. That's not the purpose of everything that we're doing at the Living Center. It's how to integrate together. It's like saying, great, there's a school here, but is the school integrated with the, is a project happening here called Paradise. It's a pear orchard that's being converted into a, a food forest. And that's his name. He's calling it his project Paradise. Is that being integrated with the folks who are doing the Bee Village with the Bee Research Station? Are all these things taking place? So when you ask about resources, the reason I'm throwing this in out there to you is that's one of the things I want to really write a lot more material for hopefully this winter or next year. It's hearing what each person is doing and saying, okay, they've inspired me. Hopefully what I'm doing here might inspire them, might inspire other people so that they keep raising that bar of how little bit of land you need and how you can still create fertility and, and grow um, so much. It's one of those things about sitting as the host of the show and curating now more than 500 interviews over 600 episodes, if my count is correct, that you know, many of this is not about having people tune in and listen to every episode all the time, because there's just so much diversity. This podcast doesn't have the same kind of draw as like an Unsolved Mysteries or True Crime or something like that. But I want to talk to so many different people doing so many different things and accomplishing them in different ways so that you can find someone whose voice is inspiring for you, that you can find someone who has a project that is in a climate analog similar to yours, wherever they might be in the world. Or even if it's just somebody happens to be growing one of the plants that you love, that you can learn more about that plant and other people who are doing that work. And that's where, yes, I love this diversity of conversations and having folks such as yourself on the show, because I am unlikely to ever create anything like the Living Center. But I know that there are incredible people such as yourself and your wife who have. And so... Let's talk, let's learn more about that and share it with others who would be inspired to create something like this, or who would have the land to invite people on to, to start their own projects. To me, it's interesting how I find, like, when I moved here, I was a small kid on the block. I only had 50 acres. All the neighbors around here had, you know, 150, 300 acres. I'm now the smaller kid on the block. I have 50 acres. Nobody has 150 or 300 acres anymore. Most of them have 1,000, 2,000. You know, all the farms got wow. bigger. This is the most fertile land of all Canada. This is the, the flat, one of the flattest land of all Canada. This is the best climate of all Canada. You know, we have 20% of the fresh water and the whole world is right around here, around the Great Lakes. Uh, they're right here. Uh, this is where the most people are. And, you know, we're losing plants left, right, and center. If I can talk about the, you know, saving the, 
the rare endangered and threatened plants because we're losing our habitats, we're losing our shade. And I remember a person who inspired me a lot, his name is um, John Seed. He said, we don't need more trees on the planet. We need more leaves. And he said that like 25 years ago, we need more leaves. And that's what forest gardening has. Forest gardening has more leaves. You know, it's not just saying, oh yeah, I've got an apple tree here, but who else is going above your apple tree and who's going below your apple tree? Because then you have more leaves. If every leaf is, has that potential to heal that landscape. So one of the things I always say when people come here on land is try to imagine how many more billion more leaves are on this land this year than there were last year. And they all laugh. They're like, oh my God, this must be billions and billions because all the trees, all the bushes and shrubs, everything's bigger, right? Than it was last year. And that's regeneration. And I had to throw that in there. I'm not sure why that felt so strongly to bring that in. And it doesn't have to be large. And what we're doing here is not just, it's the campaigns, not just but what we're doing is hopefully to inspire other people to say, is some people have like organic farmers that we know here, because obviously I know pretty much almost every organic farmer in our area, because one of the first organic farmers in Ontario, when there was only 10 or 12 organic farmers in all of Ontario, we have over a thousand, we have over a thousand organic farmers now in Ontario. But instead of these farms getting bigger and bigger and bigger and going towards, you know, monoculture or whatever, and some of these farms are going towards permaculture farms, which is exciting. The thing is a farm can get bigger easily uh, with the zoning, with everything, but take a farm and make it smaller. It's actually hard to rezone it saying, actually, you know what, I'm going to take my 500 acre farm. I'm going to turn it into 10 farms. Um, no, that's not going to be easy. Or for me to say, I'm going to take this 50 acres. I'm going to turn it into 10 farms. Everybody has five acres. Uh, that's not easy. The bylaws make that challenging for people. I would say, you know what, we're going to build another home or two more homes on this, on this land so there could be a few other families here. That's not easy. But to go bigger, no problem. Just clear cut a few forests. Another farm buys this farm, and now it like becomes one big you know, mega farm. What we're demonstrating is saying, no, you don't have to go bigger. You can actually go smaller and still sustain yourself and allow the land to regenerate and create a, a win for the individual and for the community. That's why I said that, you know, the campaign was about the five, the five wins, the individual, because they're doing what they love. It supports the center because the center has more diversity. It supports the, the community. It supports the next generation of, especially seeing these kids. These kids are here. They're here right now, but they come here Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. And there's between 10 to 20 kids here, various ages. The oldest is 13. The youngest one, I think, is seven. And so it's the next generation of how they're going to be exposed and be connected to Earth, to the biological world, and be able to identify in herbalism, we call it green blindness. It's like, yo, look at all that green stuff out there. But how many different shades of green are there? And can you identify, you know, a cedar from, a, you know, a pine or whatever? And these kids are learning that. And sometimes I go out there with these kids and it's like, I'm just shocked a five or six-year-old knowing stuff. It's like, what? How do you know that already? I wasn't exposed to that. Or a lot of these kids are not exposed to that in schools, right? They're just not taught how to uh, know how to grow soil, how to grow plants and connect. So if, if I had one thing to leave with people, it would be keep in mind the five wins. So you don't just think about yourself, but you're actually thinking for the earth, for the next generation, for the community, and whoever, you know, whoever's land that is or sharing that land. And because we need places that can demonstrate another way of being. If we don't demonstrate it, it's like it's just theory. And it's like, yeah, another great book on you know, permaculture, forest gardening. But we just need thousands and thousands of sites that are actually saying here. This is working, not just for, for me, it's not just working for the individual, but it's actually creating more biodiversity of life and the land is regenerating and being happier and uh, thriving. And that's the promise that I made to this land when I moved here is no matter what, that this land will become more beautiful and more abundant than when I leave. Well, thank you for that and everything else you shared with me and for joining me for this interview on the Permaculture Podcast. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. And that was Shantri Kassara. You can find his work in the Living Center at the Living Center. Center is spelled C E N T R E dot com. Again, the Living Center dot com. You'll, of course, find a link to that, more information about the crowdfunding campaign, and more in the show notes. There's a quote from Bill Mollison, which I've shared at least once before on the show. I think it was during my interview with Jeff Christou, author of Utopia, a Permaculture Vision. And that quote states, When we design, we are always building for future floods, future fires, future droughts, and planting a tree a few inches tall that will be future forest giants, throw future shadows. Future populations 
will need future soils and forest resources, shelter, and security. So somebody needs to range ahead in time, scout out the next century. We are not daydreamers, we are time scouts. I see this long vision and having a plan to respond to change as vital if we're ever going to be able to design out the designer and ensure that the designs we lay down in our lifetimes can continue without our management or ongoing influence. Part of that manifests through the classes I teach that explore getting deep with ourselves, our stories, and our practices. In those times, my goal with students is to develop a grounded, rich understanding of what matters to us and create a cohesive vision and narrative that flows and grows with us throughout our lifetime. Another piece is to have conversations like this one on the podcast in the months ahead. Through the stories of Shantri and other guests, we can learn different ways to adapt to the changes we'll face throughout life and how to plan so our work carries on for generations after our hands have left the soil and our words are lost to the winds of time. If you would like to continue the conversation and expand on these ideas of planning for the succession of projects and organizations, I ask you to get involved. Check out what Shantri and his wife are doing via the website, and if you're near London, Ontario, Canada, go take a workshop or propose your own project to become an ecosystem participant. In regards to the podcast, send me your questions so I can include them in upcoming episodes. If there's something you'd like answered on air, there are at least 10 other people listening right now who would like to hear the same. Also, if you know someone involved in succession planning at any level, from the personal to the systemic, send me their information so I can see if they're a good fit for this ongoing, occasional exploration of long-time horizons. Whether you have questions or would like to suggest a guest, the best way to reach me is by email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. I look forward to hearing from you. From here, the next episode is an interview with Vicki Hurd to discuss what we can do to reverse the bug apocalypse and rebug the planet. Until then, spend each day planning for succession while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>